0: I think all adopted people have challenges. And I guess these things are around identity. And there was a whole narrative about unwanted children, unwanted babies, rejection, abandonment. These are common themes for all adopted people. For Māori, there's the added burden of wanting to engage in the ataha Māori or in te ao Māori, but without knowledge of whakapapa where you're from, who you're related to. Where's your place in the world? You can't fully engage as Māori. I think at some level it really breaks people. But coming from te ao Māori, you are never lost. You are never lost to your tūpuna. Whether it's this generation, the next generation, the generation after, you will return.
1: New Zealand is set to reform its 68-year-old Adoption Act. Between 1955 and 1995, more than 100,000 New Zealanders were the subject of closed adoption. The thinking behind it was that any connection between the child and the biological family should be completely severed. It was the ultimate nature-versus-nurture experiment, and as a result, tens of thousands of Māori have been completely cut off from their whakapapa. This is a story about one of those closed adoptions and the lifelong ramifications thereafter. Leanne Brown was born in Palmerston North Hospital on the 20th of December 1962. She was adopted to a Pākehā couple from Levin and became Jennifer Catherine Small. Tell me about your adopted parents. Okay. My mum and dad were
2: hard workers when we were growing up. Um, I never went without anything. We always had everything. Never always had food in the cupboard. Got pocket money every week. My mother was arts and crafts. She made all our clothing. She knitted all our jerseys and our cardigans. But because I was mouldy and my mother was a Pākehā, we used to go to mother and daughter evenings because she wanted people to know that I was her daughter. We wore the same cardigans. She knitted one. What she had on was what I had on too.
1: That must have made you feel good.
2: Yeah, it did. It did because I wanted everyone to know that was my mum.
1: And so did you have siblings?
2: Yes, I've got three siblings, two brothers and one sister. They're all Māoris. My oldest brother and sister are actually full-blooded brother and sister, and they have found their parents. And my younger brother, who's younger than me, he's also found his parents.
1: So when you were growing up and you had four Māori children and two Pākehā parents, did you think there was something a bit different?
2: Not at first. Just thought I was a bit different from what the other Māori kids did, maybe.
1: How were you different?
2: Because... I was, when I was growing up, I always wondered why I wasn't in Kapahaka. Obviously, I, I felt I didn't belong anywhere because I didn't have a marae, I didn't have an iwi, blah, blah, blah. I came to Shannon when I was, I think I was 15 or 16, came over for a weekend. and When I came to Shannon, I knew nothing about nothing about Māori at all. Never been to a marae, nothing. More than 40
1: years since moving to Shannon, Jenny plays a big part in the community.
2: Grab a basket, hun, and you just go around and grab you some koi.
1: She runs a local food bank and is a much-loved member of the local marae, which her children whakapapa to through their father.
2: I know that marae with my eyes closed the kitchen, yeah. I know everything about that marae, you know, because that was me. A big part of me was in the kitchen, always out there, afi and,
1: so often when we go to hui these days, we do whakawhanaunga. People stand up and they say they're pepeha. Mm. What do you say?
2: I don't get up. I wouldn't get up.
1: What's stopping you?
2: Because I haven't got a...
1: You haven't got a...
2: Because I don't know where I'm from, so I can't get up and say, oh, blah, blah, is my iwi, blah, 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 because I don't know, so...
1: Hey, guys. Hey, Mia. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Today, Jenny is back at the marae she calls home. She has an important decision she wants to share with friends. So today I've come out because I want to connect with my
2: papa, and titty is the only marae I know. I call it my home. So it'd be good to find out other stuff. How long have you been thinking about it? Not long. Not long? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. Yes. Yeah, yes, but it's more for my kids. Just want to do it for my kids. I don't really... Whatever the outcome is, is the outcome.
1: To the world, Jenny clearly looks like a wahine Māori. But like thousands of other closed adoptees, Jenny has absolutely no clue what papa is. And that's how we came across her. Jenny had posted on a Facebook group where many New Zealanders impacted by closed adoption are searching for their whānau. Mother producer Annabelle Lee-Mather and I decided to help. What, if anything, do you know about your birth parents?
2: In the 90s, I applied for my birth certificate, but back then, cos it, cl- it was closed, The only info they gave me was my mum's name. The name she gave me, that she was from Macedon, and that she was 19, I think, when she had me. And then I I misplaced that one, and then I got another one about a year or so ago, and attached to that birth certificate was a letter that had all my my grandparents on my mother's side, and that my father was a good rugby player, and and he was an orderly at the hospital and she was a nurse.
1: Jenny's file also states that her mother was Pākehā and her father was Māori. Her parents' relationship is part of a wider story about what was happening in Aotearoa
0: after World War II. There was an increase of Māori coming from rural, predominantly Māori areas, to the cities, primarily for work. So this was kind of the first time that there was a larger group of Māori in Pākehā spaces.
1: Dr Maria Hainga-Collins is an academic who spent much of her career researching and writing about adoption. Like Jenny, she too was adopted to Pākehā. Maria says it was often the case that Pākehā mothers were forced to give up their Māori babies.
0: I think we see that primarily half of the women marrying in the 60s were already pregnant. So you either married the father or your child was placed for adoption. They were really the two socially prescribed pathways. So a Pākehā woman hapū to a Māori man, there was not only stigma that she was pregnant outside of wedlock, but the stigma of being associated with Māori. And so parents, and I've heard this story so many times, parents um, were very forceful in making sure that their daughter didn't marry a Māori.
1: Not only were many vulnerable young women bullied or coerced into giving up their babies,
0: some received appalling medical treatment. I think the trauma was horrific, and what happened as a punishment? Some doctors delivering these babies um, were very rough and damaged the women who were giving birth. These mothers were told, um, "This is what to expect for what you've done." You know, like so there was there were women who couldn't go on and have other children.
1: Jenny says, for the most part, she had a happy childhood. But when she reached the age of twelve, things started to change.
2: I think I started rebelling, trying to find my identity, and get mad at my mother. In one part, do I even um, like she was in the kitchen, and I uh, not at though, though, I just broke smashed one day because um, I don't know. I just didn't feel complete for some reason.
1: You were living in Levin then. What were you getting up to?
2: I was allowed to go out on a Friday night as long as I was home by 9 o'clock, but that didn't always happen. I really, really hardly got into any trouble. I think for my mother I probably did, but apart from, I, I, was, I never did anything that involved with police or anything.
1: But the authorities were about to get involved with Jenny, Concerned about Jenny's behaviour, her parents reached out to a family friend for advice, a constable and his wife, who was a nurse. They suggested a local programme.
2: They told my mother that I was going to a summer camp where there'll be horses, because they said horses, because I loved horses. I didn't used to ride much of them, but I always used to have horse books to read. And then I went, oh, yep, 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 that'll be cool. But then that wasn't the case.
1: So, in 1975, on Jenny's 13th birthday, her parents packed her up and headed to the promised summer camp.
2: I do remember going there with my parents or my dad's Vauxhall car, and we went to this place, had a big water tower and heaps of buildings, and then I could see all these weird people walking around in that. And that's when I learnt I was at a place called Lake Ellis.
3: Lake Ellis was a psychiatric hospital and it was set up to basically take the criminally insane. It was a high-security psychiatric hospital. It was like the maximum security prison before there was a maximum security prison. And so some of the country's most dangerous criminals resided there.
1: Aaron Smale is one of thousands of Māori who were adopted to Pākehā. He's now an investigative journalist who spent years researching and reporting on Lake Alice.
3: In the 1970s, there was an adolescent unit set up there by Dr. Salwan Leakes, which is bizarre, really, when you think about it, putting kids in amongst criminally insane adults, but that's what they were doing. He was kind of God, really, and ran the joint as a dictator, effectively. There were a number of psychiatric nurses that ran it, and they were as bad, if not worse, in some respects than Leakes himself.
1: Some of the most dangerous criminals at Lake Alice were housed in Villa 8. Thirteen-year-old Jenny is placed next door in Villa Seven.
2: They took me in. I remember them taking me in with my suitcases and everything, but that's all I remember. And then I, I presume they would have just left.
1: And when did it start to get a bit odd?
2: Oh, straight away, probably. Like um, they'd take me into, they'd take us into the medication room where they give out all the medication. And if you're naughty, whatever naughty was to them, they used to fill up this plastic medicine cup with this black stuff. It starts the name starts with P. I forget what it's called now. And you used to drink it, and it was the most ugliest drink you could ever ever taste. But that wasn't the worst. But the worst bit was the injection. They give you an injection, and it just paralysed you.
1: When you were medicated, do you remember what happened to you? When I couldn't out get out you? of the
2: medication room. I had to walk myself along the wall to get out, because I couldn't walk.
1: How long would it last?
2: For ages, like a few hours, because I think that was the punishment to paralyse you.
1: And would you just lie there?
2: Lie, sit, whatever I could do, but I just couldn't walk out of that room. I walked in, but I couldn't walk out.
1: And was there any other punishment?
2: Yep, electric shock treatment.
1: At 13, <laughs> can you talk me through that?
2: What I remember of it, well, the other things I do remember is, I don't know why, but they took me over to the boys' villa. They took me up the stairs into the dormitory, and the first bed on the right of the dormitory, they make, made me lie on the bed, and then all I remember was these, like, earphones going on my head, sort of like earphones, and them, them turning up some sort of machine. Did it hurt? Yes. It was like electric shock, you know, like being electrocuted.
1: Who was there? Who was doing that to you?
2: Dr. Leakes.
1: Hundreds of former patients experienced medical abuse at Lake Alice. Jenny says the treatments she was subjected to have taken a toll on her health, especially her memory. But now she's ready to know more. We've managed to get hold of her Lake Alice files and we've arranged for her to meet with Aaron Smale, so he can explain them.
3: In the admission form, I don't know if you notice it here, it's got status and it's, it says INF. That means informal. And it basically tells me that you were never diagnosed with any psychiatric illness. You know, a doctor is supposed to diagnose when something's wrong, then they're supposed to prescribe some treatment, and then they're supposed to keep records about the progress. A lot of the criticisms are saying that Dr Leakes did none of that. And when I look through your file, that's what's happening here as well. There's no real justification for you being in there.
1: Jenny ended up spending three years at Lake Alice. Her files show her parents admitted her, citing rebellious behaviour. Dr Maria Hanga collins says adoptees were often over-scrutinised with severe consequences.
0: So if you have a Māori child that you've adopted who starts to display normal angst, then that can be seen, one, as the bad blood of the birth parents coming out, and I can see how then parents may seek help for that child but the form that that help took could have been and resulted in removal, and we see that in the inquiries into abuse and in state care. Māori children were picked up and placed in institutions at alarmingly high rates.
1: Another disadvantage Māori adoptees faced is they were often placed in homes with family problems. Jenny's records detail her father's heavy drinking and her mother's mental
0: health issues. In adoption, there's a hierarchy of babies, and at the top of that hierarchy were fair blue-eyed girls, then fair blue-eyed boys, then down you come to fair-looking Māori children who could pass as and were often passed off as Greek or Italian and then at the very bottom were dark-skinned children. And those children, the hard-to-place children, were often put into homes that would not normally be accepted. And it's talked about in terms of a glut of Māori babies. The nurse's notes
1: in Jenny's file list the heavy drugs being administered, including the sedative Peraldehyde and the antipsychotic Lugactyl. These were often given as punishment for minor indiscretions.
3: Did you know why you were getting it?
1: No, because I was naughty, that's all they'd say.
3: Right. Yeah. And the ECT, do you sort of recall how many times you...
2: No, I don't. I just know where I went for it. Right. For the seven, upstairs, to the left. To the left, yeah.
3: On the bed. It's often talking about, here it is, settled and slept well settled and slept well. When I read that, I think, well, of course she's sleeping well. You've knocked her out, you know. You've given her enough to knock a horse out.
1: As a young teen, Jenny was also being given the contraceptive, Depo-Provera.
3: So you've got a teenage girl who's been knocked out with antipsychotic drugs. She's also been given contraception drugs, and she's in amongst dangerous psychiatric patients. Now, add all that up, and you've got a young girl who's at extreme risk, extremely vulnerable. And she's not the only one, unfortunately.
1: Do you worry that something may have happened to you? Yes. Now I do, as in at all I do.
3: Yeah, because I know
2: a lot of scary things that happened there. So I don't know what happened when I was under that thing because once that machine went up, I don't remember anything after that.
1: Jenny's story is all too common for those unfortunate enough to have experienced Lake Alice. But what's remarkable is how Jenny's been able to move on.
3: I know a lot of Lake Ellis victims, and it essentially destroyed their lives, many of them, and it destroyed their potential. It had massive impacts on their ability to hold down jobs. Their education was compromised, to say the least. They carried that trauma and still carry it to this day. I'm still always amazed at how human beings, one, can inflict that kind of abuse, but then the people that are on the receiving end of it, can still somehow pick themselves up and carry on. And Jenny's one of them.
1: Without a name recorded on her birth certificate, Jenny's had to take a DNA test to try and narrow down the search for her father. So while we wait for those results, we make a start on finding Jenny's maternal family. We know Jenny's mother, Patricia, passed away in 2020, and she left no online footprint so we focus on Jenny's grandparents, whose names were on the back of her birth certificate. Using their names, we were able to identify two of their other children, both the deceased. Through their online obituaries, we track down some of Jenny's first cousins, and they provide a phone number for Jenny's maternal sister. Well, thank you for being open to taking our call. I know this must be out of the blue for you. Did your mum ever mention anything?
0: Um no my mother said nothing like was a complete surprise mm. the type of person that she was, she was very posebook. Mm. Um I didn't really know a lot about my mother growing up and what her life was like. Mm. Um she's since passed away. Yeah, so shocked
1: to hear this but mm. kind of not surprised either. Today, we're on our way to give Jenny an update. Her maternal sister, Kim, has been speaking to friends and family to try and find out more about the circumstances of Jenny's adoption. She's also sent some photos of their mum. So at a park in Palmster North, Jenny gets to see her mother for the first time. Oh, she's beautiful. She is beautiful. That's your mum. And you know, she, likes so many women who gave their children away and had to at that time. Shouldn't tell anyone, not even her best friends, you know. But she is
2: dead though, eh? She's cool, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Jenny's mum held her secret close. It's a powerful reminder of the stigma and shame experienced by the young women who adopted their babies. Today is about easing that hurt. Hi. How are you? Jump in. Jenny has flown to Auckland and we're driving her to Hamilton to meet her sister, Kim.
2: They know I'm Māori, eh? Yeah,
1: they know so you're Māori. Do. I don't want to shock them. you are <laughs> crack up. <laughs> you're me? Everyone. We are. Oh. We are. Everyone's it's believed 25% of New Zealanders have an adoption connection. Kia ora. And as Jenny meets her sister for the first time, it's clear closed adoptions don't just affect the adoptee. It's lovely to meet you. You'd After 60 years, Jenny has finally come face to face with her whanau.
0: You look like your mum. <laughs> and I can see my nana as well.
1: To get to this point in the hunt for Jenny's papa has taken hundreds of hours of research. It's required DNA testing, genealogy websites, subscriptions, and lots and lots of phone calls and emails. Resources that are beyond the reach of many adoptees. Do you think the government has an obligation to help those New Zealanders who were impacted by closed adoptions find their papa and their whānau today?
4: I think they absolutely do. I, I, I think it's a it's a serious form of abuse to cut people off. I mean, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we signed up says every child has a right to know its identity. Article eight. It's it's a fund it's a fundamental, and to cut people off from that is is, is tragic. So I think the government does owe a duty here to, to to help people find those things, to to use their resources to help find them, because the the resources to do this are, are quite difficult. Getting tests done and all that sort of stuff. It's not easy, and it's it's a, people sometimes don't have the energy to do it or the resources to do it. So it is a form another. Form of state abuse, in my view.
1: University of Auckland law professor Mark Hennigan specialises in family law. He has long advocated to have our 68-year-old adoption laws fixed.
4: I think we've put adoption in a cupboard, and we don't want to be embarrassed about it. It's which was such a bad law at the time. I mean, it, it, it passed a law which, for example, said we don't recognise Murray Customary adoptions anymore. We got rid of those with the, with the Adoption Act. It was put in place because we. At the time, we thought that any children born outside marriage were illegitimate. In fact, we called them filius nilius, nobody's child. So we shamed women who got pregnant um, outside marriage, and we just took their children off them, and they were expected to get on on, on with their lives.
1: The introduction of the solo parent benefit and societal changes have seen adoption numbers steadily decline to around 100 children a year. The current review aims to put those tamariki at the heart of our adoption laws. It's the latest in a long-running series of attempts to reform an Act that's out of date and out of order.
4: There was a human rights hearing which I was involved in and said it breaches about six human rights. Our Adoption Act, the 1955 Act, and it went to Parliament and Parliament at the time said we're too busy. And I think they're still saying the same thing. It's kind of sad because if we don't address our past and, and, and learn from it, we're going to make the same mistakes.
1: What changes would you like to see in the outcome of the review?
4: Well, I hope we <laughs> revise the law fairly quickly. I, I just can't believe uh, that nothing has happened. I mean, I think the Justice Department did a very good job. Um, they recognised the, the importance of open adoption, of having involvement with, with the birth mother. They even thought they might pass a Fungo Act. So I think their, their discussion paper was excellent. And it's just sitting there, and, and I don't know why it's not high on the, on the priority list um, in, in this situation, because it affects a lot of people.
1: We made multiple requests to interview Justice Minister Kiri Tapu-Allen but all were declined. In a statement to Mata, she said, I am yet to have a report back from the Ministry of Justice on the second round of consultation that considered a range of proposals for reform. Further work beyond this advice and the timeline for it is yet to be confirmed. However, a bill won't be introduced before the election. I am still committed to this work, which remains ongoing. But for those who lived through closed adoption, change can't come soon enough.
0: I think an apology from the government would be a good start because that's naming it. That's naming that something happened and and there's been trauma in your life for a reason. And all these feelings of rejection or abandonment, of never knowing where you come from, there's a reason for that and that was a state-sanctioned policy. So an apology, I think, would be helpful.
1: If there's one thing adoptees know all about, it's waiting. But finally, Jenny's DNA results have come through. She has more than 47,000 genetic matches on her father's side alone. One is a first cousin, And it doesn't take too long to figure out which set of grandparents they have in common. But Jenny's paternal grandparents have eight sons. Figuring out which one is Jenny's dad takes more time. But eventually, the answer is revealed. Today is a homecoming 60 years in the making friends and supporters have travelled from Shannon to Greytown, where Jenny and her children are being welcomed onto Pāpāwai Marai and into the arms of her father's whānau. Jenny didn't get to meet her father, he passed away in 2018. But he had always told his Farno he had a daughter who'd been adopted. So when we made contact about Jenny, it wasn't a surprise. <laughs> Within weeks, the Hemi Fano had come together to welcome Jenny back to her Turangawaiwe and give her the answers she'd been searching for.
3: Hemi Tiuwanga Otera uh, married Mirapanne
4: uh, Maika, and they had Tempehi. And from Tepehi uh came uh, Uncle Duncan and uh and from Uncle Duncan uh, his children and his mokupuna are all sitting at the back here, so they are all no one
1: what does it feel like to finally know your your maunga, your awa, your tūpuna, your whānau? Um,
2: overwhelming. I don't know, I can't explain it. Just gazing around, just looking at the photos and just looking at them.
1: How important was it to do this?
2: Very important.
1: Why is that?
2: For my kids' sake, find their pīpihā and their whakapapa.
1: For those still searching for their Fakapapa, Jenny's story is a reminder of the fa'atoki, e kuri o e ngaro, he kākano, e ruia mai I Rangi āteo.